Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Mark Traherne has enjoyed a successful and varied career in life sciences. From academic research in Switzerland to Big Pharma, from founding one of the UK's first contract research organisations to a stint as Life Sciences CEO for UK trade and industry, Mark is now Chief Executive of Celeste, a company whose unique organoid technology increases the accuracy of drug discovery programmes. Today I'm joined by Mark Traherne of Celeste. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. Um, Tell us a bit about Celeste. We were just talking about it, but tell the audience a bit about what you're doing here and the, and the work that the company's involved in. Sure. Um, so Celeste is based here at the MediCentre, where we are at the moment, mm-hmm. and we've got some labs here which we're just expanding following some, some recent investment to increase our footprint here. And we take um, organoids, which are little mini tumours that mm. have been produced from biopsies that are originally taken from patients, And we grow those up in our bioprocessing technology, which enables us to produce large quantities of these tumours in the the dish, in the in vitro system, for use in in drug screening Mm -hmm. or, you know, large CRISPR studies or any utility in the industry, principally, where you need a lot of organoids at scale. So it's really taking tumours from the human body and making them available as a a research tool uh, to researchers, particularly in drug discovery, who want to discover new cancer therapeutics. Very interesting. So they so they can work on live tumours without having to use patients, essentially. Use patients or put them into animals, because the other mm. alternative... So the one type of organoid is patient-derived organoid, which right. is what we do. So they're derived from a patient and they're grown entirely in vitro. The other is PDX, or patient-derived xenograft, where they're actually grown in mice. Okay, and yeah. then you can actually test them in the mouse. And, and, and we avoid the mouse bit right, yes. and actually focus on doing everything in vitro from the patient through to the drug testing. And then the drug testing can be done in many different formats, but often done in standard sort of microtiter plates, you know, mm-hmm. 96-well plates, 384-well plates that people in the industry use as uh, the routine assay methods these days. I see. So so is that then more um, reproducible than, than using natural tumours? Like yes, because everything is consistent, although the... The original biopsy came from a single patient or even a single tumour from a single patient. Mm-hmm. We can produce it at scale so that they're consistent, you know, batch to batch consistency, that the organoids are the same size, that the data that you then generate is a lot sort of tighter. Yes. The error bars are, are much better in the sense they're smaller and therefore you can, uh, you can get much better quality data. Uh, not only in the individual assay, but hopefully over a long period of time because mm-hmm. you can go back to the original batches that say, in year one or year five or year ten, you're getting the same. So it's very much like the uh, same sort of philosophy behind two D cell lines, where yes. you know often start from a from a tumor or a patient, and two D cell lines have been around since the 1950s, and you know HeLa cells. Um, but this is sort of the three D equivalent. Mm-hmm. So a sort of a three D ball of cells that replicate in our case the gut because we work principally at the moment on colorectal cancer tumors okay um, and they can be provided at scale for screening you know 10 20 hundred thousand compounds that enables you to look in a system that's much more relevant and much closer to the human pathology I see 
And any reason for colorectal cancer particularly? That's where we started. So right. the bioprocessing technology came out of uh, Marianne Ellis's lab, who's our chief technology officer, and she's at she's at Bath University. Mm -hmm. um, she's professor of uh, uh, of engineering there or biomedical engineering. And then um, Trevor Dale, who's the other uh, co-founder. Um, he's based at Cardiff here in the School of Bio Biological Sciences. Yes. He was working on colorectal cancer organoids that yes. the two met and decided to grow organoids in the bioprocessing technology. So it was a sort I of see. synergy of two, two complementary technologies, but the, the cancer um, biology around the colorectal cancer uh, really comes from Trevor's lab, and he's been interested in cancer for, for a long period of time. I see, okay. And you're the CEO here, Mark, and that role tends to cover a lot of different things in different companies and, and from day to day. As much as you can, can you tell us what your yeah, role so, is? Yeah, so basically, jack of all trades and, and master of none. <laughs> um, so uh, basically, I, I've sort of been brought in really just help with the commercialization yes. of the te technology and, and, and what we have. Um, you know, um, the team have built, you know, a, a great technology platform which mm -hmm. enables us to produce uh, organoids at scale for use in drug discovery. And I've been working with others really to sort of take this to our industry partners, large pharmaceutical companies, contract research organisations, and other people who need to do a lot of cancer screening yes. in vitro in the early drug discovery process and need to use a lot of organoids consistently over a long period of time. So I've been mostly focused on principally the... Um, the commercialization and doing the deals with our with our customers and partners right um, but also with fundraising activities that we need to do to invest in the technology and also writing grants we've been quite successful right. at bringing grants particularly from Innovate UK and, and others yeah excellent I'm really keen to get into the story of your career because you've, you've had a varied career and there's some really interesting points in there um, we always start and that, that'll take mm. us to how you got involved in this but we always start by asking about your early memories of science really and where the spark for a scientific career came from well I suppose well my father was a scientist he was okay. actually a zoologist so I suppose it didn't yes. seem that unusual to <laughs> be uh, interested in, in science and uh, as a kid I always loved the Jacques Cousteau movies okay, where he yeah, was yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the inventor of the aqualung and mm -hmm. uh, he used to have the underwater city and, uh, and all of that sort yes. of thing so I uh, went to St Andrews which is one of the few places in those days that did marine biology with the idea of doing marine biology mm -hmm. uh, and although I loved the diving and the actual practical side of it um, you know the actual science of those days wasn't that interesting it was sort of counting sea urchins and that sort of thing whereas right, obviously yeah. the whole um, global warming agenda has changed that dramatically now yes. and I think if I was living my time again well maybe I would have gone down <laughs> that route but back then there there weren't that many grants and you know I thought I then as you're allowed to do in the Scottish system change to uh, other directions because you, you did a four, we still do a four-year degree course mm -hmm. and I ended up coming out with a degree in uh, physiology and pharmacology with the idea of perhaps working in the pharmaceutical industry uh, and then went to Cambridge where I did a PhD in pharmacology yes did a postdoc there then went to Switzerland um, and worked as an academic in Basel and then came back to work for Pfizer in the UK okay. um, leading some neurodegeneration research at Sandwich down in down in Kent near yes. the, near the uh, near the English Channel um, and then um, uh, decided to with four of us from uh, Pfizer start up a company called Cambridge Drug Discovery mm -hmm. which was uh, very early this was 1997 in the contract research organizations when people contract research was just starting yeah certainly in it was probably quite well known in clinical trials but not so well known in early drug discovery sure and we were one of the first we sold the company to Biofocus 
Biofocus then got sold to Galapagos, and then Biofocus was sold from Galapagos on to Charles River. Yes. So yes. it's still going, although the name has changed. Yes. I think one or two of the original people are still there, and they, there's about four, 400 people or so based in mm -hmm. uh, just outside Cambridge in Chesterford Research Park. And then after that, I went through a series of therapeutic companies yeah. and um, uh, did a stint in the government. And then I ended up at Celeste uh, just over a year ago yes. um, where, when I joined as CEO. Um, but I think the interesting thread is I've always been interested in 3D tissue culture systems from humans. You know, So at Pfizer, um, we set up a lab, uh, what was then the Institute of Neurology, and um, in, in Queen Square in London where we were looking at human tissue and how we could use human tissue to screen drugs mm -hmm. rather than to totally rely on animals. Uh, the idea, and I, I still hold that idea, is if you can do everything as humanized as possible and not just on human cell lines but human 3D cultures, yes. uh, you know, both in neuroscience and, and cancer, um, that can only hopefully increase the predictability and the probability of being successful. So if you have complex human cultures early in the drug discovery process then hopefully you can pick the winners yeah, earlier yeah, in the yeah. process and then focus your R&D on the on the compounds or the therapeutic opportunities that are most likely to succeed. Mm -hmm. Hence your interest in this project. Hence it is. So this is yes. a, it's my first major foray into cancer but I've okay. been, in, been in 3D culture and tissue culture for you know, 20 or 30 years. Yes. So some things are familiar and some things are new and it's always good to have something a bit new to focus on. Absolutely. So I'm interested in a, in a couple of things that you mentioned there. Mm. Um, you you mentioned that when you finished up at Cambridge, you headed out to Switzerland. Mm. Tell us a bit about that. You know, how different was that? What was the experience like going out there? Well, Switzerland was great because I was actually offered an academic job. Yes. Um, and um, it was my first sort of proper academic job. I'd done a sort of postdoc before, but this was like a, a sort of tenure track position, but it was a position where you could potentially stay as a as an academic for a reasonable mm -hmm. period of time. And it was in the Biocentrum in Basel, which was a um, part of Basel University, and the department was the pharmacology department, but it was uh, heavily funded by what were then the three Swiss companies. So this is dating me a bit because this is pre-Novartis <laughs> that there were three companies rather than two. Sure, yes. Um, and we had a lot of industrial connections and you know collaborations with industry. And in fact, even during my PhD, that was funded by Merck. So I'd always mm, had, a, mm. you know, had a sort of industrial connection with at least funding or collaborative through. Yes. And I suppose working in academia, but with pharmaceutical companies. So I said, this is really interesting. And then I got approached to see, would I like to join Pfizer? Mm -hmm. And Pfizer at that stage were starting up sort of neurodegenerative research in Europe. They'd already done that in, in the US. Right. And they had the opportunity of setting that up as I said, initially in the Institute of Neurology, and then we moved the, the team and the technology down to Sandwich in Kent. Yes. And, and you mentioned as well that your, your interest in drug discovery or the idea of a career in, in drug discovery, mm. drug development, was, was fairly early on. It was mm. when you were finishing up your degree. What was it that drew you to it? What was, why this path particularly? Well, I've always been interested in sort of practical things. Mm. And, you know, although, you know, academia is a great career and, you know, you know publishing sure. papers is good, I always wanted to do something that was a practical use, you know, so if you could come up with new therapies or things that change people's lives, um, you could potentially do something beneficial for a much greater percentage of the population, yes, of course. Uh, you know, because as an academic, um, you know, often people read your papers and, you know, but that they're, they're people like you. And, and I think when I was in Switzerland, it was very interesting, the, my boss at the time said, well, realise, he says, when you're sitting on the tram, and Basel was full of trams, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the person next to you is the person paying your salary. You should tell them what you do and why it's important and why it's important to them. Yeah, because, okay. you know, the Swiss have a sort of 
direct democracy system and a funding system where you're always compelled to explain to you know the taxpayer mm -hmm. what you're doing and, and and so I thought yes it's really important to actually so that the people who are ultimately paying your wages they understand why you're doing it and why potentially if your research is successful yes it's beneficial to them and you'd always had links with industry mm. from what you've said through your three PhD through mm. your postdoc um, and then going into Pfizer what, was it a big change then for you going into industry from academia since you'd been connected with it? Or? Well, I'm sort of familiar with industry, but yeah. I've never worked for it. And actually, yeah. Pfizer, it, it, certainly in those days, I sort of this was joining them in '92. Uh, you know, Sandwich was you know growing very rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, it was a manufacturing plant. You know, they I think they used to make TCP, and right, some yes, of you so. may remember what uh, you know TCP smell like. You sort of got that <laughs> smell. They used to make uh, you know antibiotics there, things like teramycin. It was a manufacturing plant. It was a not just an R and D site. It was a properly fully integrated pharmaceutical company. Yes. So you know Pfizer, an incredibly good employer. And you learnt things that, you know, all the way from the basic research that it would go all the way to a product. Right. They still had sales forces based there. So you saw much greater breadth all the way from the R&D through to the commercial exploitation, the clinical trials. Yes. So you're exposed to a lot of new things that were very interesting. And actually, as a result of that, I understood the commercial world uh, a lot better than I did when I joined. And, you know, Pfizer, I was there for five and a half years, were mm -hmm. an incredibly good employer. And, um, you know, I learnt a lot and, and, and still have a lot of friends who uh, I worked with at the time. And do you remember any differences in terms of your role as a research scientist in those two environments and, and the things that are different there? Yeah, so I think the difference is, I mean, clearly, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but as an academic, it was sort of publish or perish, right? right you know, sure, so, yeah. so publications were the, the main thing, the main thing that certainly in those days, and, and bringing in grants, clearly. Um, obviously, and I did publish a little um, at, at Pfizer, you know, maybe a paper a year, which obviously wouldn't sound very good in an academic environment. You know, publication was encouraged, but it wasn't the be all and end all. Right. The focus was to get development candidates into the clinic, come up with, you know, disease modifying therapies and so on and so forth. So it was a different focus and it was a focus on you know basically producing something that could enable or drive clinical benefit. Mm, I understand, okay. Um, and you mentioned as well the, the sort of origins of Cambridge drug discovery mm. and, and uh, touched on sort of the differences in the CRO market then, mm. particularly compared to now because CRO is almost the, the sort of default model now. Mm. Um, so tell us a bit about that, where did that idea come from and what, were that, what was that like? Well so when we were at um uh, at Pfizer, you know, we people were just starting to outsource. You know, mm. it was seen as a slightly unusual thing, but you know, maybe we should do this because probably mostly up until that time, everything had been done internally. You know, right. so you know, you, you build a sort of fortress, put barbed wire down it a long way from anywhere, and you do all your R and D. Yes, you know, it's all around you. Um, now, obviously, it's a completely different model. People like to be near academic centres. You know, so. Here in the Medi Centre, we're close to the Department of Medicine and the hospital. You know, mm -hmm. so it's a different environment to perhaps what it was twenty or thirty years ago, yeah. where pharmaceutical companies were always quite isolated from everything else that was going around them. And I remember the, the first thing I think that was I can remember being outsourced was clinical biochemistry. You know, cause yeah, okay. These, and then then other things. And we suddenly thought, oh well, this outsourcing thing it might take off. So four of us got together and and you know with different uh, different parts of the organisation. And we'd see one or two people leave at that time to mm. go and you know start biotech businesses because certainly in the 
you know, the late 90s, biotech was still relatively new in the UK. In, in you know, California and Boston, yes. it was quite well known. And there weren't that many biotechs around, yes. you know. And so the idea of setting up a CRO from scratch um, was seen as a bit risky and a bit mad. And a lot of people said, oh, why, are you, why are you possibly, why are you doing that? And, and we said, oh, no, this is the future. And, and, you know, I think now, probably just recently, you know, pharma probably outsources more than it does internally. Yeah. Um, but certainly back then it was a few percent and we've seen it sort of steadily grow um, to being 50 or even 60 percent now in, in, in the modern day world. Mm, absolutely. Um, and then when you talked about your role here, you talked about it being quite commercial in its mm. view in terms of sort of um, business development, mm. fundraising, that kind of thing, which is very different than what you were doing back yes. at the beginning of your career. So. Um, when did you make that transition onto the commercial side? Well, I suppose by working with industry, you have to be commercial because sure. you're talking, you know, you are a commercial organisation. So I suppose when we first started actually doing business development was back in 97 with Cambridge Drug Discovery because we had to go and talk to large pharmaceutical companies principally all around the world and saying, well, have you thought about outsourcing? Have you thought about working with us? Because you can access new technologies, have greater flexibility. So I suppose I'd been on the... I'd been sort of outsourcing to CROs mm. before that point, but then I was sort of not sure which way round it is, you know, poacher turned gamekeeper or gamekeeper turned <laughs> poacher. I'd gone on the other side yes. and then had to start to sell to pharma companies. So obviously we knew what it was like on the other side of the table, but actually trying to sell things, you know, raise money was all new. Yeah. Um, and But, you know, it, it was very good. I mean, I think there's nothing like jumping in and, and having a go to learn how to yes. do it. And, you know, we had we had support from some, you know, good business people and, and um, you know, investors were very helpful and supportive. So I suppose it was really late 90s that started doing it in earnest and kept on doing more of the commercial stuff than the scientific stuff ever mm -hmm. since. And I think, you know, a lot of the scientists that we speak to, they, they assume they're two completely different mm. things, and, and in some ways they are, and there's mm. different skill sets. Um, what, the commercial side of your skill set that you've developed, what were the things that, that stuck out as lessons for you on that side, and what were the challenges on, on operating in those commercial um, well, I suppose you have to understand, to some extent, finances, you know, have to understand your know, sure. profit loss yeah. balance sheet. So you have to understand, you know, how, how, how financial matters work and how, which you sort of knew already, but you hadn't done it in any practical sense. Mm -hmm. It was just a sort of theoretical concept. However, I think, you know, actually, even as an academic, you, you're having to you know, plan ahead, you know, do some research, write a grant, you know, sell yeah. a grant, that sort of thing. So, you know, it, you have to bring money into the organisation. Uh, as an academic and in essence you're doing something similar now the, the 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 type of contract is different the way it is you know much more closely monitored often in, in a contract right. than it is with a grant and you've got to have clear deliverables and things that are going to make money mm -hmm. but many of the you know the basic skills are the same you've got to communicate people you've got to write you've got yeah. to be fairly disciplined you've got to do things on time so on and so forth so i think a lot of the the basic science training and right. uh, you know is helpful yes and then it's taking that and adapting it to the commercial world and really it's understanding what the other person wants your customer your client your collaborator wants if you understand what they want what their need is and then how to provide the solution then everything happens mm -hmm. quite well and then you know the finances and the mechanics and the contracts to work around that where things don't work is where you haven't really understood what the client wants yeah and and actually there's a mismatch between their expectations and your expectations so i think it's just being upfront with people um 
trying to understand what they want, explaining you know when things go wrong, how they correct them, and actually doing as best you can what you say you're going to do and delivering on time and on budget. Mm. And, and also learning really how to put contracts together and, um, and make sure that the business makes money. Yes, of course. <laughs> so keeping a you know, grip of control of costs and, and make sure that um, you, you match your income and expenditure so that you're planning ahead to raise money rather than having to raise money with your back against the wall, which is always one of the problems in the biotech world is yeah. that uh, fundraising always takes longer than, than you'd like it to. No, of course. And it's something you mentioned there that I think is a very underrated business development tool, which is delivering on the yeah. projects that you get. It tends to, tends to help. <laughs> it's really important that you don't sign, because you, know, you can sign things up that you don't deliver on, and then right. actually nobody wins. Yeah. So it's just trying to plan ahead so that um, you know, you, you, you've got a really good grip on what you think you can do and, and a pretty good idea of what you think the customer wants at the end of it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your time in government as well. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I, that was a sort of um, a, a bit of an unusual uh, career move, I guess. I, I got um, approached to uh, join the government for, it ended up being four years. Originally, it was going to be uh, 18 months. Right. Uh, and this was the when UK trade and investment existed. It now, it's now called Department of International Trade, but mm-hmm. this is back in 2012. Um, they had an organisation called UKTI, which is UK Trade and Investment, and that had the Life Science Organisation. Yes. And I was the chief exec of that, and we were to do two things, to bring inward investment into the UK, so what they call foreign direct investment. Yep. So it's um, foreign-owned businesses, you know, investing in R&D, setting up new labs, and so on and so forth, and then actually helping UK businesses export internationally and trade mm. internationally. And we delivered on our targets. We, you know, created jobs. Um, hopefully, we helped a lot of businesses set up in the UK create jobs, but also uh, UK businesses export internationally. Yeah. And then there's a reorganisation. Uh, UKTI no longer exists, but is called Department of International Trade. Right. Uh, and I left. You know, left around that time when that was happening, when everything got reorganised. Yes, I see. Mm. So that must have been interesting from a cultural point of view, both in terms of going from industry into government and in terms of just the international cultures that you have to deal with. Yeah, so government, I mean, you know, and you know, working with the civil service, so UKTI, as was, was part within the sort of business department and part within the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So you had, you know, access to people in embassies and consulates all around the world who'd mm. be promoting the UK and promoting UK business. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very big network, um, you know, civil servants, you know, hardworking, very um, competent people. Um, but, um, you know, there's a lot of change in government. I mean, not as much as there is now, perhaps, <laughs> but, but, but back then, you know, you yes. still, you know, thing, things move. Um, but I think there was certainly, in the government at the time, a huge interest in uh, life sciences in the UK, promoting mm-hmm. life sciences. And at the time, they had a, a spe- dedicated life sciences minister. You know, yes. there was a real push to, um, you know, make, you know, which I think the UK does punch well above its weight in terms of life sciences. But Absolutely. in essence, what I was doing was a business development job. I, I was, yeah. you know, acting, you know, selling selling the UK or the brand the UK mm-hmm. and also um, helping UK businesses um, export internationally, but also attracting foreign businesses to develop um, jobs and infrastructure in the UK. Yes. Okay. So if you think about it from a career point of view, um, you've obviously worked in lots of different environments, from one of the, you know, the biggest pharma mm. companies in the world, to setting up a CRO, to government, to a uh, small pharma mm. company here, um, worked with academia, worked with very commercial mm. projects as well. 
What do you think, and I'm sure there's a few, but what do you think are the, are the main career lessons that you've learned, or the main things you've learned along the way that maybe you wish you knew at the beginning or that have stuck with you? Well, I think most things I've learned are, are pretty obvious, but they might not have seen <laughs> obvious back in the day or at the time. I think it, it all depends on working with people. I mean, mm -hmm. people are the most important things, and actually, how can you get the best out of people, uh, and, and hopefully, how can they get the best out of you? So, yeah. so I think it, it is a is a very people centric business. People tend to say it's all about technology, which it is, but ultimately, the people invent the technology, and mm. if there's a problem, good people can always fix the technology. So, mm -hmm. I think it's. Um, you know, it, it it is really you know making sure that you work with good people and and you deliver and and hopefully you create a good working environment and have good relationships with your investors and and your customers. Um, I also think that um, you know technology has become more complex over time. You sure. know, I mean certainly with you know computing and AI and everything like this, and I think. What what can happen is you sort of lose sight of the goal or the mission. You get you get yeah. there's too much of the shiny stuff around that's distracting. <laughs> and and I think to be successful, you've got to keep really focused on what you need to do, what the goal is, what you need to deliver on, and not just sort of say, well, that's a really flashy bit of technology. We'll go and look at that. Um, you know, we'll use that when it's appropriate, and we'll use different technologies. So to become technology agnostic but to blend together the different types of technologies that you need to put together to deliver on the project or the goal or, or whatever the business needs to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so keeping a focus on the goal and keeping in mind that the people really yeah. are what delivers. Yeah, absolutely, because even I'm sure if AI really takes off and you know, you've got very clever computers, yeah. they still need people. I'm, I'm certainly of the view that, that, that uh, you know, we'll still need people in research for, for many years to come. Yes, yeah, I think interestingly, I, I speak to a lot of people about automation in science particularly, and um, uh, you know, w what's being replaced is the bits that people don't like doing anyway, yeah. right? The routine and boring parts, but what, what technology can't do is it can't make those leaps of insight, it can't, it can't look at something and just for no reason think, mm. well, why did, why, what if we tried it like this? Yeah. Um, and that's that's where I think there's a long way for it to go to catch up. Absolutely, and and I think you know, and I can understand some people probably feel threatened by AI and technology, sure. and it's, that's not an unreasonable fear. But I, but I do think it should create, at least in theory, you know, higher quality and better jobs, mm -hmm. and take some of the you know drudgery out of the the more routine jobs, and you know, and, and actually enable you know to be more jobs and better because because you know there's always this sort of fear that technology will actually reduce. Uh, you know, employment, and certainly, you know, in the early days of high throughput screening that I was involved in, well, actually, you know, all the people with pipettes are going to be made redundant, <laughs> and uh, the machines are going to take over, and that never really happened. Yes, you know, the people as the high throughput screening needed to be fed with more assays, you needed people to develop those assays to put them onto the machines. So, um, you know, I, I think if it's done right, uh, and you want to be make the system work, um, you know, making sure that the people are looked after and the people are doing more interesting and more um, challenging jobs in some way mm. is a good thing and, and, and let the machines and the technology take some of the drudgery out of it. Yes. Um, and if you look at the, the UK biotech sector at the moment, you've mentioned technology there mm. and the impact that that's had over the mm. years and currently. Um, and uh, you touched earlier on the fact that, that we punch well above our weight mm. um, as, a, as a sector. What's your view on where it's at at the moment and you know what's happening in biotech in the UK right now? Well I think you know um, biotech is, is really strong I mean I think our academic research base is really strong you yes know, 
clearly there are certain threats and uncertainties at the moment, which you know you probably know <laughs> as much as what's going on as I do. But yeah, but you know clearly you know the people and the talent that we have right now are are great, right? Mm. And I and I think we need to continue to support them. However, that's done. Um, we need to. You know, develop our people here but also bring people from overseas here to work with them so we can learn from each other because I think the other thing I've learned is that science is not scientists in a white coat stuck away in a lab on their own it's highly collaborative and always right. has been you know even the early scientists you know from the renaissance through to the early Victorian era, they used to have meetings societies you have the Royal Society it's all yeah. about talking and exchanging ideas and exchanging ideas internationally mm. so science and our industry will only flourish if it's an international industry you can't have little silos broken up into yeah to the countries all around the world and, and and I think that you know we have some of the best universities in the world clearly we're very close you know here to Cardiff which mm -hmm. is a great university um, we, we know we have a lot of talented people around us here in, yes. in the Medicenter I think it's really the people that will drive the innovation so if we can you know develop and cultivate bright people then we'll continue to be successful mm -hmm. and you know hopefully continue to lead the world in terms of Various metrics like you know value created for shareholders, yes. you know, patents filed, and, and and you know particularly new medicines discovered. Yes, I think it's in a healthy place. I saw a stat recently from a report I read that twenty seven percent of all biotech companies in Europe are in the UK, which is phenomenal if you mm. look at the, the size of the country. Uh, it's a good time to get involved. Yes, <laughs> so look, you you've been chief executive of a, a, a few different companies, mm. and you also sit um, as chair of a board on a, on a few different projects sure. as well. Um, so I suppose you've seen the CEO role from both sides, mm. from the board side and, and as an incumbent. Mm. There may be people out there listening to this who have aspirations mm. to be a CEO one day or to, to mm. take their career in that direction. What do you think, and I, I know it will vary from mm. organisation to organisation, but what, what do you think makes a good CEO and what should someone be aware of going into that role, do you think? Well, I think, you know, I think you've got to be excited about what you do. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it is not just a, a sort of process job where you come in and, you know, tick boxes. Yes. You've, got to, you've got to say, well, actually, I'm really excited about this. I hope you are too. And you've got to bring people with you um, because it's all about building the team, keeping people going, uh, you know, because things always don't work out. Research often, you know, takes longer, is more difficult. You sure. know, you, you'll hit some problems on the road. And if you can't get on when things are going well, you're not going to get on when things are going badly. Yeah. So I think it is actually keeping people motivated hopefully helping them develop their careers, um, you know, working well with your investors and working well with your customers and partners. Mm -hmm. it, it's getting those sort of different component parts working together because as a CEO, you've obviously got your shareholders that you're responsible to, you've got your customers and collaborators you're responsible to, and you've got your employees, right? And you've right. got this Venn diagram. And what you've got to try and do is get maximize the overlap of those three circles sure. so that you can get as many people benefiting from your activities as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's trying to keep things moving without just turning it into a box checking exercise, which right. it should never be. Once you go there, I think um, you know it's it's sort of like okay, it, we're just coming into work to to, to fill out time, and yes. you're coming to work because you want to make a difference. You want to sort of help people discover new therapies. And here at Celeste, you know, we hope that organoids are going to transform the early drug mm -hmm. discovery process so that we can significantly reduce the you know the very high attrition. You know, ninety percent of of R&D doesn't end up in a drug, right? right so, yeah. and uh, interesting, I was just, this, uh, I think, because you picked up uh, last month, I think, um, in the Financial Times, you know, that Glaxo, for example, was saying that um, 
they were wanting to uh, in the cancer area which is going to become their one of their new areas of focus you know you know not only 10% of drugs working but 20% so they want to double right, their productivity yeah, okay. and i think that can only be good because if you if you double productivity uh, the industry becomes more efficient and hopefully drug prices are you know come down because yes. you know you have to um, r&d is more efficient and you're having to you, know, you can deliver more per pound or per dollar than yeah. it was before and I think that's where we see Celeste fitting in, is, is really helping the large, the medium and the small pharma companies and the biotechs deliver more for less. Yeah, that's interesting. So using those human cells early to, yeah. to check efficacy and all these kinds of yeah. things. So if you take a patient-derived organoid mm. and, and you can determine whether it works or not in the dish, you know, or in the, in the microtiter plate, yes. you know, many months or days or years before you go into a human, hopefully you, you, it's easier to pick the winners to sort the wheat from the chaff much earlier in the process yeah. and therefore you know the big costs to R&D in, in the pharmaceutical sector are late stage failures if you have to write a drug off after a billion dollars yeah that's a big that's very wasteful yeah and it's interesting I suppose a 20% success rate doesn't you know on its own doesn't sound amazing but technically you could be halving the cost of the drugs with that absolutely and I mean I think uh, you know there, there are other you know, sectors with, you know, long R&D life cycles, you know, aerospace mm -hmm. and, you know, perhaps mining and things like that. But, but you know, our sector, life sciences, is very risky. Yes. And, and, and I think what we need is new technologies to try and mitigate that risk or understand that risk mm. so that we can move from A to B as quickly and efficiently as possible and minimize the risk of failure, you know. So, you know, fail early, fail cheap, rather than, you right. know, wait to the end and, and fail when it's too expensive. Yes. Because that will have a net effect of significantly increasing the productivity of R&D. And, you know, um, certainly I would share Glaxo and other pharmaceutical companies' aspirations to, to be more productive. Mm. So with all that in mind, can you tell us a bit about what's next for Celeste as a company? Sure, yes. So, so very good question. So, we, I just mentioned we just expand our footprint here. Yes. Um, we are continuing to build relationships with large pharma and, and contract research organisations. So, continue to have you know more commercial interactions than we had last year, and hopefully the mm -hmm. other will continue to grow. Uh, we also want to bring on new uh, new types of cancer model. Okay. So we, we announced last year we had a collaboration, well, investment from investment I share grant from Innovate UK. Yeah. And there we're developing breast cancer models. So alongside the colorectal cancer models, um, we're also looking at uh, bringing other, um, other other sort of tumor types and other mm -hmm. types of cancer into the portfolio, and also developing healthy organoids, organoids that don't have any obvious cancerous pathology around them. So broadening what we do yes. um, beyond our current focus of the colorectal cancer organoids from Trevor Dale's lab, Professor Trevor Dale's lab at Cardiff, and broadening much wider offering to the research community worldwide. I see, so using that technology to then... Yes. To then so we we're focused on the bioprocessing technology, which means that we put the organoid lines in there and then we produce large quantities of the organoid yes. lines consistency at, at scale over a long period of time. Yes, we should hopefully decrease risk further in these drugs. Absolutely, because you know if you if you can have uh, much better quality data, you know, hopefully the quality of your decision making is improved and, and 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 ultimately you can make smarter decisions earlier in the process. Yes. Okay. So as a as a final thought, and I suppose we might have touched on some of this already, mm. um, for those out there who are early in their career in mm. the industry or maybe sat in academia thinking mm. about taking the step over, um, 
What, what's the one piece of advice that you would leave them with, or the one thing you wish you'd known at the start that you know now? A uh, very good question. I think um, go with what you're most interested in, because mm. uh, I think uh, a lot of this is driven by interest and enthusiasm. Sure. Um, if you think, you know, I'm doing this because this is the best paid job, or you know, this is the, this is the job that's the, the least risky. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I would say take a risk, have a go, and, and, and you know, go with what you want to do in enthusiasm mm -hmm. because that's going to make it what you want is to be able to get out of the bed in the morning and say, I really want to go to work. Yeah, I think if you're sort of getting out of bed in the morning, say, oh my god, I've got to go to work again, you know, <laughs> I think so. So, find something, whatever it is. I mean, hopefully, it's in science and hopefully, it's in drug discovery, but if it's you know, music or art or whatever it is, yes. go with what you think is really going to drive you because I think that will create a fulfilled career because you're more likely to be successful, you're more likely to be a team player and um, go with what, what drives you yeah. would be my view. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I think people, people think a lot about money of course mm. and, and it is important mm. um, but it's probably not what you're going to remember years from now how much you got paid in this job <laughs> absolutely you can't you can't you can't take the money with you in the yeah. end of the day you know and um and, and i think you know obviously i i was lucky in my time my area we didn't have any student debt you right, know which yes. probably you're getting a lot of your listeners are sort of uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you know and I, but obviously i do understand you know that um a lot of people coming out you know particularly after a phd and a, and a long career you know may actually have have student mm. debt and, mm. and of course you know I understand why that is but you know that we didn't have that in that time but yes. I think you know ultimately though um, and I know houses and things are a lot more expensive to buy proportionally but having said all that I would still encourage people to go with their dreams and um, and, and not be quite so cautious as perhaps yes they could be yes mm. perfect mm. Mark thank you very much my pleasure and, and thanks for, for inviting me absolutely Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery, and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.